Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies. You're listening to The Jam Price Show, all about movies, and today my guests are Thomas Hamilton, who is the director of a brand new documentary that we're going to be discussing, and the co-writer and co-producer, Ron McCloskey. And the film we're going to be talking about today, and, and it, it really is fascinating, is Bar- Boris Karloff, The Man Behind the Monster. And I must tell you, this was very, very interesting. I mean, I I have, I have to say, I've never been, I'm not a fan of horror pictures, so I really have watched many of them. Of course, we've all seen Frankenstein and many of the other ones that Boris Karloff starred in, but this isn't a genre that I normally go to, so it was fascinating to find out more about the man behind the mask, and thank you both for coming, and again, fascinating. I want to know how you both were attracted to this project. Um, Ron, why don't you start, since you were the (laughs) co-writer on this. Thank you. Well, you know, if it wasn't for Mary Shelley, who wrote the original novel, she was 18 years old at the time. Amazing. never been out of print. An amazing story. So it started with her. So by her writing the book, it then became a play and even the silent film, Thomas Edison did its silent version. And then with the success of Dracula, it then Frankenstein followed. And I was a little kid growing up in the 60s. These films were shown on TV. I fell in love. I write a, right away related to the monster, which I'm told millions of other children did as well. Yes. As a, as a person that wasn't understood and was shunned. And I said, this is great. This is so wonderful. I got my first monster model in 1962. I still have it. And I just started collecting. And in 1997, I had a chance to meet Sarah Carlock, Boris Carlock's only child. Wow. And one of the first things I said to her is, Sarah, I want to make a film about your dad. He deserves it. He did so much with his work that he deserves to have a, a spotlight shown on him. And it took me a long time. It was it's very difficult to find the right filmmaker, the right person that could do this. And that all changed two years ago when I met Thomas Hamilton. And Thomas, how did so? How did you two meet, and what made you decide that you would like to get involved with this film project? Well, okay, um, I was—I mean, I've always been a fan of Boris Karloff. I mean, it wasn't—you know—it wasn't a stretch when when Ron first um, introduced himself to me. But um, I had made a film about Leslie Howard from Gone with the Wind love uh, Leslie called Howard. The Man love called it. The Man Who Gave a Damn, and uh, it first showed up on Turner Classic Movies on June the fourth, twenty eighteen, and Ron was watching that night and. And he saw the film, he, he liked it, and he found my email. I'm not quite sure how, but he found my email and emailed me the next night and said, I, I really liked your film. Would you be interested in doing a project about Boris Karloff? And there was a real uh, kismet moment because I had been very preoccupied with trying to get hold of a Boris Karloff film over the previous few weeks that, that I really wanted to see. And so Boris Karloff was very much on my mind. And um, it didn't take much. I thought, this is a wonderful story. Karloff's career is so massive and uh, I could immediately see the potential and uh, I said to, to Ron yes of course and even though there wasn't any money in, in, in the frame at that point I thought if we do a Kickstarter campaign I'm sure we'll be able to raise enough to at least get going with the filming and so what happened was Ron and I met a couple of months but maybe a month or six weeks later I went to Edison and we shot a whole series of campaign videos for Kickstarter which are now you watch them they're quite funny because we're like a double 
double act <laughs> and we're sort of trading quips about Boris Karloff and um, and the campaign started that September funny enough when I was in Toronto and uh, it did very well and uh, we were able then the following month to go to LA and start shooting all these interviews and it was just a kind of roller coaster from there but um, I was very happy to be involved because it was just such a great story and, and also I was interested in the fact that I could explore the, the life of this guy his acting and, and the way you know he always brought something more to the table than you would expect in those films so he, it was a real joy you know and it, it's fascinating for me there were a number of well there's so many things in this movie but he never gave up you know he you know he had a lot of setbacks it wasn't that he was an instant star and it, by any means and he started no. in silent films and on the stage and he traveled you know was from England originally as you know and then traveled you know to uh, Canada and I just love the fact that he persevered he never mm. ever and that I mean even though he sometimes would leave to go make money doing other jobs yes. which was what you have to do when you're an actor you know you don't make money right away doing it if ever <laughs> and he persevered with that so with, to me that's that little engine that could you know I love those stories yes. about people who don't give up on their dream and he had mm. this dream so why don't you tell the audience a little bit about about his big break and how he because he was a background actor in many films and mm-hmm. uh, how he actually broke into starting to become more st- mainstream well Allison I'm sorry that's right go ahead <laughs> I believe with you a thousand percent but when I first sat down and thought of telling the story one of the titles I thought of was called Opening Doors and, and here's what I meant by it when he was on the other side of that door waiting to walk in for that first time he was a struggling actor just trying to make his bills trying to feed his family when he came through that door and well did that close up he became a star and his life changed and everything changed after that but you're absolutely right he just never gave up he was 44 by all rights he should have quit he should have gone on to something else and say, look, I'm not going to make it. But he didn't. And in many ways, that's how I felt about this film. I said, I can't stop. I've got to get this story told. I have to make this film. And it changed when I met Thomas. So, Tom, tell tell Jane about the background of, of Karloff. Um, well, as I, as I said before, when um, when Ron contacted me, it was really it was clear to me that we could we could raise funds through Kickstarter and we could get attention as well. And having previously made a film, which everyone told me was basically impossible to do which was the Leslie Howard one I thought well I know I can make this film and I know that we can do it and we just have to keep going and it's very much the Karloff approach Um, and Karloff's big break of course as you know was Frankenstein but one of the things that I wanted to try and avoid in this film was the the usual sort of it starts when he's born and it follows him through and eventually becomes successful because I'm thinking this is a 21st century audience if we don't get them right into the centre of the story at the beginning we're going to lose their attention and so I thought it was important to start as he becomes successful and then into the film 30 minutes in that's when you go back and you start revealing what made the man what he is and then that sets everything up for the rest of the film because you start seeing how conscientious he was and he does Screen Actors Guild and you understand where that's coming from because you've, you've seen the background by that point but um, I felt it was very important to kind of really bring the audience in and give them some of the most exciting images at the beginning so we could really have their attention. He believed a great deal in luck, too. He felt that he 
was a very lucky man. Hmm. He used the phrase being on the right corner at the right time. And there's a story about how he got uh, in the criminal code. He went down to see his agent. His agent wasn't there. So he was going to go to one of the uh, clubs that he belonged to. And he says, now I owe dues. I can't go there. He was going to go get a coffee and a newspaper. He says, no, I don't have money for that. (laughs) So then he said, well, let me stop by the actor's equity building. That's where my post office box is. Let me see if there's any mail. And while he's there, the woman says, are you working? And he says, no, not at the moment. He says, they're casting for a play called The Criminal Code. Do you want to try out? He went right down there, got it. And that film was really important because it eventually led to uh, Frankenstein because he was in the play. And then when they made it into a film, Howard Hawks wanted him in the film. And and then things started going after that. Again, just amazing. And I love the way, Thomas, that you did film it, that you did pull us in right away uh, and then, you know, unfolded the story along for all of us. And yeah, it was amazing. how He he was one of the founding uh, members of the Screen Actors Guild. He was very instrumental in getting, you want to talk a little bit about that, Thomas, about how he got, you know, how that all came about for many people, because... I'm a member of SAG and AFTRA mm-hmm. and Actors Equity, actually. I studied acting in New York a million years ago. But, um, but so I'm really happy that they did start that. So you want to talk a little bit about why yes. they began that? C- certainly. And, and I'd also like to say a little thank you to um, SAG AFTRA themselves, who were very helpful in this film. They let us film in, in the boardroom at the SAG AFTRA um, uh, office block um, twice. Once for uh, to to film Valerie Yaros, who's the the archivist there, and the second time when we filmed Peter Bogdanovich, because Peter couldn't be filmed at his home at that time because it was undergoing renovation, and they very kindly said, "Well, bring him in here." So so that was incredibly kind of them, yes. and it was because of Boris's association. Um, Boris basically had a very tough time in films in the silent age and you know like every actor Mm -hmm. that was a somewhat obscure he was treated like cattle and uh, you know worked long hours much longer than he was being paid for even when he was doing frankenstein um, he was only paid when he walked on the set in full makeup and yet he would be in the chair four hours earlier having jack pierce's makeup done and then another two hours having the makeup taken off Mm. so you know, he was, and he only got paid uh, five hundred dollars for the entire film. Oh so it really wasn't. Was it? Am I, am I right, Ron? Five hundred for the entire film? It wasn't a lot of money, and they really didn't look to him as being one of the stars or one of the people to draw into the film. But no, yeah, Thomas yeah. was right. He was paid very little and wasn't treated very, very nice. Yeah. And so, and so, basically, when he was, um, he had become a star. And he was in England. He was coming back from England. And um, I believe it was James Gleason, uh, the character mm-hmm. actor James Gleason, that approached him and asked him if he would be interested in this new union of actors that was being formed. And it had been happening whilst he was away. And uh, he said, of course. And they, they, they started going to meetings in secret because it could ruin your career, especially for a new star who, you know, the studio could just say, well, maybe we won't bother with this one anymore and we'll just quietly let him go in a few B pictures. So it was a dangerous thing to do. And, um, but he was very passionate about it. He would go on to other people's sets as well. There's a wonderful story uh, about him going on to the Petrified Forest set 
when he was at Warner's doing uh, a film called The Walking Dead. And uh, so he's in his ghoul makeup and he walks onto the set and says, no, would you be interested in joining the Screen Actors Union? And of course they took him seriously. And um, yeah, no, he was, he would find out which members of the cast weren't in his own films, weren't union members. And he would talk to them and very sort of sweetly suggest that they consider joining. And that was one of the things about Boris was he was so um, understated in the way he did things. He was passionate, but he didn't overplay his card. You get that. You know, you, you definitely get that feeling about him, that uh, he wasn't bravado or any of that. He was, you know, very, yeah, he was very, very low-key. Um, you know, certainly his on-screen presence even belies that, too, in the way that he played the monsters that he played, you know. He, Frankenstein, I mean, let's talk about, let's talk about that, because that little, the scene with the little girl, with the flower, you both can take this. I'll start with you, Ron, because that was really fascinating. Thing, that whole story about that and how that yeah, changed just, the film. Go ahead. Yeah, it shows again what t- uh, what type of person he was. Uh, Marilyn Harris played the little girl, and when they first went out, they it was a location shoot, so it wasn't done on the studio. They had to drive to, to get to the lake, and Boris was in full makeup, full costume, and he wasn't too sure how she was going to react, but she went right up to him, grabbed his hand, and said, can we ride together? So right away, they formed a bond, a relationship, mm-hmm. and then when they got up there, and the scene was about to take place. He disagreed with the director, James Well, on how it should be played. And, you know, eventually it got cut out. And there wasn't much to know about that. But in our film, we get a chance to really delve into what happened and, and tell about how it changed the way that Karloff, in his mind, had a certain way to play the creature. Of, In fact, one of our wonderful interviewers, Greg Mank, said that Well wanted to be, Well wanted the monster to be able to frighten people, but also to be frightened. And that's what Karloff showed after that scene mm-hmm. that he did the monster did not realize what he had done Tom what else do you have to say about that I, I was going to say that um, from a directoral point of view it was very interesting to me because what I wanted to do what I like to do in these kind of documentaries I don't just want to sort of put a little bit of narration on and, and say this happened and this happened I want the audience to experience it in real time mm-hmm. almost and to see the process because I think it's really fascinating and it, and it brings this film history to life it stops being something something that was 90 years ago and it becomes something you understand and you feel right now and so that's one of my favorite scenes in the film for that very reason because I was able to build it up and you know we have the music of Laura Forrest Hay really is quite something under that scene mm-hmm. um, and it's it's one of my favorite moments it just as storytelling and you got access to I mean it's amazing all of the yeah. things that you got access to and you got access to because there was two different cuts of that or, or more than to was mm, yes a couple yes. different cuts to that film so how did you how were you able to to get the original and then the edited version of it well, well the thing is the edited version was around for a very long time and it was shown on tv in england and america right up to the end of the 80s and it was a towards the end of the 80s that they restored that scene back and also other scenes with colin clive where he says now i know what it is to be a god you know that scene mm-hmm. um and so actually i went to a friend who i knew had been taking stuff for 40 years and I said do you have an old copy of Frankenstein so he he sent 
me the, the tape and I and I just recreated the cut in the current version because it would have been very fuzzy. But I recreated the cut so that you could see it and, and experience it. Wow, amazing. That's amazing right there. The, <laughs> the wizardy of uh, filmmaking in yeah. that aspect. You have a lot of wonderful people in this film. Mm. Um, you have, uh, who I love, uh, Guillermo del Toro, Roger Corman. Everybody's a, everybody is a, uh, connected to Roger Corman. I can't tell you how many mm. interviews. This, sh- this show has been over, it's launched over five years ago. And I've had so many different filmmakers and actors and whose careers got started with Roger Corman. So he's he's like a, he's a, he's a through line with everyone. But you also, I mean, Peter Bogdanovich, Bogdanovich who I, I love, but Christopher Plummer um, mm. before he died. So let's talk a little bit about how you attracted, I mean, Stephanie Powers, it was great seeing her, how you attracted uh, these various um, people to come and talk about Boris Karloff and their experiences uh, about him as an actor. And um, yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about that, Thomas, and tell me how you got, how you attracted all of these wonderful people. Well, in, in one sense, it was very straightforward. Um, I would find if there was an email contact for these people through IMDb Pro or, or for their agents, and I would write to them and say, um, and explain about the project and what we were trying to do. And many times, mention of the name Boris Karloff got a fairly instant reaction. Stephanie Powers was the very first person to come on board and she wrote back to me and she said, I would be thrilled to be part of this film. She was so enthusiastic and, and, and very lovely. Mm-hmm. And um, she was one of the first interviews we, we actually filmed. Um, Christopher Plummer uh, we, was not so easy to get directly in touch with, but we did it through his agent at the Pitt Agency. And, and word came back to us, yes, he wants to. I know that... With that one, Ron initially tried, and I then tried, and uh, and it was taking a while um, because he was between he was in a number of films at that time, and what eventually happened was um, my wife discovered that Plummer Christopher Plummer was going to be in Toronto uh, at a retrospective of his own films of his career, and so we contacted his agent and said, if we book ourselves into the same hotel where Christopher's staying. <laughs> and we set it all up in our room. Do you think he would he would be able to take fifteen minutes? And you know they, they went to Christopher, and Christopher said yes, of course. And so he strolled into our room at three o'clock, sat down, did this interview, which was beautiful, and was absolutely charming. Couldn't have been nicer. And um, yeah. So it, when it happened, it was so simple. It was a great. That's a great story. A uh, guerrilla filmmaking. That's what you were doing. A little bit. Yes. yes. A little very polite. And I, I also have to add that Christopher Plummer, to me, kind of uh, took the mantle from uh, Karloff, as far as the type of acting and the fact that he mm. did television and film. He would love to go back uh, to the stage and and do plays as well. And just a wonderful man. I mean, he worked with Karloff on television and also uh, on the stage. And we were so lucky to get him. Yes. Just, just a wonderful, mm, yeah. wonderful present. Oh, is that mm. probably one of his last uh, appearances before he passed away? I believe um, so, yes. He did, he, did, um, he did another series. He did a TV series, I think, called Entourage or something like oh. that. I can't remember exactly the, night, the title. But um, we filmed him in November 2018. Okay. So there was a bit of time. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he was in—he was in great form when we saw him, and just 
lovely man. I will tell you a secret, Anne. The the what? Sorry, not Anne. Jan. I will tell you a secret. <laughs> I'm getting all kinds of names today. <laughs> well, this, this, is the, this is the fifth interview we've done on, in a row. But um, the um, the one interviewee that I was nervous about was Roger Corman. Okay. I started shaking before we went in the room with him because it was just, it's Roger Corman. Right. Huge in my life, just huge. So that was the one time I, I felt myself sort of quaking, but he was lovely as well. Yes. Yeah. As I said, all, all roads lead to Roger Corman. <laughs> it truly. It seems truly. like it's amazing. Let's talk a little bit. We don't have a lot of time, but a little bit about the um, This Is Your Life segment, because that was mm-hmm. also interesting. Uh, do you want to start with that, Ron? Yeah. You know, in our film, you'll find out he had a lot of secrets. <laughs> he had a lot of things he did not want to divulge. So when you see him look at his wife, and saying what's going on, and he's sitting there. You can imagine what's going through his mind to say, who are they going to bring out? You know, what are they going to reveal? And even though he was very good friends with Ralph Edwards, they used to socialize, he still, I think he was just petrified on what was going to happen. And yet, the end result was beautiful. I mean, he brought out, you know, somebody that they work with in Canada together. They brought out Jack Pierce. They brought out a famous cricket player, uh, his daughter was there, so it turned out great, but it was tense for a while. It was not a happy moment yeah. for Boris. Well, he definitely, so, you know, that's what it looked like, too, and that's what you talk about. Yeah. Go ahead, Thomas. You have more to no, add? I, I, I was, I, no, I was, I was actually disagreeing with Ron. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it was, it was, it was a horrible experience in a way, apart from the fact that they had Jack Pierce and the cricket player, and you can see that Boris lights up when Jack Pierce walks right. on. Yeah. He was so happy to see him. And I think that's a lovely moment because that's he, he says, I owe everything to this man. Hmm. That, that, that was a good moment. And, you know, he did... You know, he helped people and he didn't, and I guess they brought somebody, they brought someone out that, you know, he had helped and he didn't want anybody to know that. He wanted to keep no, those know. things private. And that says a lot about him and his character also, you know. Yes, yes. And and we, we, we heard a lot of other stories along those lines of, you know, people that he helped in one way or another. And um, the trouble is you can only feature so much in, in a 90-minute film. And we also didn't want it to get too well, Christopher Plummer actually said this. He said, you, you want to be careful it doesn't get too mushy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, we tried mm-hmm. to avoid that. And I hope we right. succeeded. Well, you, you know, know. He, was a very, he was a very giving actor. Um, there's a term for when one actor is just talking into a camera and giving lines, and another actor's off camera. And usually they have someone else read the lines. But Boris used to be one of those actors that said, no, I'll read the lines so that person then can react to me. Right. So that was the type of actor he was. He really mm. did want to treat them equally, no matter whether they were one line, two line, or, or a co-star. Yeah, you, you know, you hear about that. And um, it always, it, when you hear about an actor being that generous, you know, because you're right, they don't have to be that there in that scene because it's a close-up of the other person. But it's much better if they can be there so they can really react. And, and not everybody does it, obviously. So it's really generous generous of the actor when they do do that, when they don't need to be on the set. So I'd love to share something if I've got time. You've got, like, because I'm going to ask you in a second, like, where can people see this? But go ahead real fast, Thomas. Okay. We have um, in, in the film the moment, I think, that in his career that engendered that, that attitude to other actors is when he talks about Lionel Barrymore in The Bells mm. in 
insisting the camera be on both of them so that they could see what Boris was doing. And I think that, a definitive moment in, in yeah. Karloff's life, it really showed the respect that someone else felt to him, and he reciprocated. So wonderful. Where can people find Boris Karloff, the man behind the monster? Where can people watch it? They can find it in theatres from the 17th of September. It's playing in theatres across the United States. There's a, a website that uh, I'm sure you can put a link up to that they can they can go to. And um, Ron, I believe, in about a month's yeah, if, time? Yeah, if you go to the website, that's the best. It's called themanbehindthemonster.com, and they're constantly updating it. it it's also showing some wonderful reviews that we've gotten. It shows also all the locations where it's being played. And I think almost on a daily or weekly basis, they're updating that list, you know, where more and more people can see it. And I'm sorry, Jan, where are you sitting again? You're in Hollywood? No, I'm in Carmel, California. Carmel. Okay. <laughs> yes. Because a friend of mine wanted to know in, in Hollywood, and this is what I love, it's playing at the in North Hollywood at a theater that's named after Carl Lemley. Yes. Amazing. The Lemley Theater. Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you both. It's been wonderful. This is a great documentary. Everybody, this is a perfect time of year as we're going into the Halloween season. So it's a wonderful documentary. And I'm, I'm, you know, as I said, this time of year, they're going to be playing his movies a lot uh, everywhere. So thank you both. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you. you. You're welcome. If you've missed any of the Jam Price shows all about movies, you can go to my website, the Jam Price Show. You can also go on the iHeart Podcast Network, Apple, Google, anywhere where you get your favorite podcasts. Also go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Jam Price Show. Thank you all for listening. Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies. 